Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Now, if you're listening right as this comes out, you may have noticed that it's not the second Wednesday of the month. And that's because this episode is going to be a little bit different from our usual show. In it, we wanted to highlight the work of one of AIBS's organizational members. And that organization is the Society. Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology, or SICBI as it's commonly known. The Society held their annual meeting in January, and that looked to us like a great opportunity to share some of the work that was presented there. Now, picking which presentations to discuss was not an easy task at all. I encourage you to check it out online, but the Book of Abstracts alone is nearly 500 pages, and the science within it is fascinating. So selecting the participants here was not an easy job. To introduce us to the organization and the meeting, I talked to Rick Blobe, who is the Society Program Officer of SICBI. After I chat with him, you'll hear directly from the participants, and they'll tell you more about the cutting-edge research that they presented. Let's get right to it. Rick, it's good to have you on the line. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, and just to get us started, for listeners who may be less familiar with SICBI, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the history of the organization. Right. So the history, it's a, an organization that's been around for a long time. Unfortunately, I don't have the exact number of years for you, but it is over 100 years. It started in the 1800s and uh, originally has not been known as SICBI for its entire existence. Um, the most immediate previous name was the American Society of Zoologists. And the history really began with uh, groups of scientific researchers interested uh, primarily in um, some of the more uh, classical zoological fields, but with broader interests in um, animal behavior, um, animal function, and ecology and evolution. And in the mid-1990s, there was a transition towards bringing the outward appearance of the society to reflect how the science had changed um, within the way the different groups of people in it were operating. And that was for the different types of science that were being done to really talk to each other and work together so that in a way the products could be greater together than each of them was individually. And the two principles that unite that are integration, which is bringing different ideas and ways of approaching science together to gain new insights, and also uh, comparative biology or comparisons, which is to use um, studies of different types of organisms and gain insight from each of them and, again, collectively understand more than you would if you were focusing strictly on model organisms. So that's the history is that, that original roots in zoological studies, but then using that to understand uh, broader biological principles and the operation of these processes through combining different approaches and uh, using a variety of systems to understand them. Okay, great. And so it sounds like you have an extremely broad membership. We do. Um, it really does span lots of uh, areas that, you know, each individually have professional societies and in their own journals and, and put out, um, you know, a lot of interesting, very high quality work. Um, but what, what, what SICBI does that's, I think, um, you know, very, very distinct is bring those areas together specifically with the purpose that they talk to each other and then figure out the kinds of problems that can be tackled together uh, that might be challenging if, if a group were to stay, you know, primarily within a single discipline. That's great. And in just a moment, we're going to hear a little bit from some participants in the most recent SICBI meeting, which was held in January. But before we do that, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the meeting itself. You know, where was it held and what kinds of things could be seen there? 
Sure, absolutely. So um, this year our meeting was in New Orleans, Louisiana, um, which is a, a wonderful setting in uh, many regards. Um, there's you know, certainly a lot of um, opportunities for, you know, as, as scientists, many of us working in the natural world, there's certainly, you know, many, you know, natural, you know, inspirations that are immediately around the area. Um, but then the, the city itself is just one where, you know, people are, you know, just very, you know, fond of getting together and talking and discussing ideas. And it's just a great fit for, you know, this kind of conference for that, that generation of ideas. Um, the conference has um, a couple of major aspects to it. One of the cores is uh, symposia, where um, our members will actually propose topics that they think are particularly current and would benefit from um, you know, strong attention, and we'll invite speakers uh, to, to talk about different aspects of those particular topics, many of which are you know, things that are you know, currently developing very rapidly. We also have um, individual contributions from members who are you know, doing work in other areas and can contribute either an oral or um, a poster session um, presentation. And how many participants did you have? You know, I think this year we had about 2,300 participants, um, almost 2,000 uh, presenters. So one of the largest meetings we've ever had. And we are just about ready to talk to a very, very small subset of those presenters. Uh, but before we do that, I was just wondering if you had any particular memories or anecdotes from the meeting that you'd like to share. I, I, can, I can talk a little bit general and a little bit specific. So um, in, general, in general, there's often my particular interests are primarily in how animals move and how that relates to the environments where they live and how they, you know, succeed or sometimes fail at performing particular tasks. And a lot of that involves video capture of animal behavior and movement. And there's usually one or two talks every year where there's a video that's shown and you can hear an audible gasp from the entire audience about how spectacular that footage was. Um, this year, uh, there were some uh, video of um, of a, a jumping rodents escaping rattlesnake strikes that were just absolutely spectacular, um, including one where the, the, the rodent actually kicked the snake in the face. So um, that was one that I, stood out as a highlight for me. That sounds amazing. Um, actually, that's a really great segue. Uh, I did have a chance to talk to Grace Freimiller and Malachi Whitford, who are the PhD students who presented that video. Um, so why don't we go ahead and have a quick chat with them and let them describe some of their work and then we'll hear from some other presenters, and then we'll come back at the end. Okay. All right. I am now here with uh, Grace and Malachi. Thank you both very much for joining me. Thank Great. You. Thank you. I guess, Grace, we'll start with you, if you don't mind. Um, your work was on kangaroo rats and their evasion of rattlesnake strikes, right? Yes. Yes. So we wanted to understand what are the kangaroo rats doing that are allowing them to escape from these incredibly fast predators, because they actually do have a fairly remarkable ability to get out of the way. And so what did you look at? What did you find? So initially we wanted to compare successful evaders and unsuccessful evaders. So king rats that were able to get out of the way and those that were not able to get out of the way in time. So we had a set of variables that we had intended to look at, which were takeoff velocity, so how quickly they were leaving the ground, uh, the maximum acceleration, so acceleration is how the rate at which their speed is changing. So the maximum acceleration for their the entire evasion, the initial acceleration, so the acceleration when they were leaving the ground, as well as their takeoff angle and the reaction time. And when we 
got sat down and started watching our videos, we realized that a lot of the time in a successful strike, so in an unsuccessful evasion, the kangaroo rats weren't even really, they didn't really have a chance to leave the ground. And so our variable takeoff velocity and acceleration and takeoff angle, we couldn't really compare. So what we ended up doing was looking at reaction time and initial acceleration. And what we found was that reaction time or successful kangaroo rats did react faster than unsuccessful kangaroo rats. And the acceleration, the initial acceleration was not different between the two groups, which is interesting. Okay, so it's not a matter of how quickly they accelerate. It's just a question of how fast they respond in general. Um, okay, one question I always have about these types of studies, and it's just out of my own pure curiosity, is how do you look at this type of thing? You know, is this a group of very unfortunate kangaroo rats that have been placed in a box somewhere next to a rattlesnake? Or, you know, how is that looked at? How do you do this type of work? <laughs> no, so these are all done in the field with free-ranging animals. They're not forced to interact in any way. Okay, so you're in the field. And now, how do you catch them in the act? It involves a lot of waiting. Sometimes we would wait all night and we wouldn't get a single strike. What, what we do is the rattlesnakes are um, sit-and-wait ambush hunters, which means they'll sit in a coiled position and they'll wait in that spot for the whole night until prey comes up to them. We go out at dusk, they'll start to emerge around sunset, and then once we find a snake in ambush, we'll set up our cameras. Okay, that sounds like a strong argument against night hiking in, uh, in this. <laughs> yes, yes, so all of our work is done at night. Gotcha. Um, and, and Malachi, you're looking at this question from the other side, uh, from the rattlesnake side, am I right? Yeah, so I'm looking to see how the performance of the rattlesnake um, alters the outcome of the interaction, whether or not differences in their ability to perform that is like strike really quickly or accelerate their strike really rapidly influences their chances of hitting the kangaroo rat. And does it? Um, so what we found is acceleration doesn't seem to play too big of a role. Um, there wasn't really any clear patterns with acceleration and strike success, but velocity, um, snakes that were able to strike faster were more successful. Um, all of our successful strikes except for one happened at over 2.5 meters per second with unsuccessful strikes kind of being normally distributed between like zero and three meters per second. So there's some evidence to show that they are striking faster when they're um, successfully contacting kangaroo rats. But again, the, as with the kangaroo rats, the main factor is not so much acceleration as it is, um, in this case, it's speed rather than, you know, when they launch the strike. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the really interesting things that we found as well is even when kangaroo rats are unsuccessful, they use their back legs to, um, they, they take their back leg and they insert into the snake's mouth that's, that's now biting them. And then they kick to rapidly pull the snake off of their body. And we found when they do this, that they actually can increase their likelihood of, uh, of survival. So even though they un they're un unable to dodge the snake strike, they can still increase the chance of survival by physically kicking the snake off and limiting the amount of time that they have to inject venom. Oh, that's interesting. Are they being envenomated in those, in those cases or are they getting away scot-free? Um, most of the time, it appears that the kangaroo rat is, got off scot-free. There wasn't really any sign of that they're physically injured in some ways. Um, occasionally, they do show some uh, deleterious effects, but after a couple of minutes, they get up and start running around and appear to be completely fine. And do the snakes tend to sort of uh, give up the attempt on the on the particular kangaroo rat when that happens, or or will they you know try to strike again? Um, in most cases, they just give up. Most of the times, they'll just go into a burrow. Um, we have several instances where the snake did track the, snake, the kangaroo rat down, um, but that is, that is really rare. 
So is it is it just more energetically advantageous to sort of, you know, hang around and wait for the next kangaroo rat to come by? Yeah, they kind of have like um a, a one bullet gun. They can only shoot one time and in, if that unless that kangaroo rat is somehow impaired, they have almost no chance of ever contacting it again. Um so they're more they're, they're just as likely to just sit and wait and hope for another kangaroo rat to show up that doesn't know that they're there. Good stuff. Any last thoughts on the meeting or your presentation in particular? Um um, our data is inherently not as detailed as these lab studies are that are commonly presented at, at the conference. Um, a lot of people have these really detailed um, data sets. And ours is pretty limited because we, we do it in the field. We're unable to pull out all these intense variables. But the interest in our data was still really high. And I, I think it was, it was interesting to see how people um, react to these just natural field data collection types of data sets. Even though we're, we're low resolution data, but it is highly ecologically real. And it, it, was, it was interesting to see that the people actually out there do care about seeing this in nature. And that's a great note to leave it on. Thank you both very much for joining me. Of course. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> All right. And next up, I'm joined by Avery Russell, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Pittsburgh. Avery, thanks for joining me. Uh, your presentation was on pollinators, and I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit about what you talked about at the SICBI meeting. Uh, sure. So basically, there's this long-standing question um, in all um, literature about foraging behavior: is that how do foragers that are foraging on many different types of resources deal with variation in their resources? Okay, and I know from reading about your work a little bit that you were working here with uh, flower-naive bees. So these are bees that have you know never seen a flower and never foraged before. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know uh, this experiment? What were you looking at? So in this case, we're trying to look at flexible pollen foraging behavior, and we knew in the literature that there are two types of major pollen foraging behaviors. And so we categorized all the floral visits for each bee um, on these, these two types of uh, foraging visits and how the bees mix them in order to effectively collect pollen from these, these flowers. And what did you find? And I guess, uh, how does that relate to learning as well? Right. So we've had, we have over a century of research showing that learning is a really important mechanism driving flexible foraging behavior, not just in bees, not just in pollinators, but in all sorts of organisms. And in this case, what we found is that um, the bees are not, um, their, their flexible foraging behavior for pollen isn't driven necessarily by learning. What's going on is that they're responding to two cues. They're responding to an anther cue and to the presence of the pollen, a physical cue on the anther. And that cue set determines whether they employ scrabbling behavior or sonication. And that's in the absence of learning. So they're able to switch between these two types of behavior, which allow them to collect pollen very effectively from these flowers, much more efficiently than if they were using only one behavior or only the other. And so the novelty is that they can switch between these behaviors to achieve a flexible foraging pattern without having to learn how to do that. Okay, so the finding here is that rather than being a function of learning, uh, these behaviors and, or the switching between them is something that the bees are picking up from cues in the environment. Right. So the, the switching is done on the basis of those cues rather than on the basis of learning. That's the, the critical point of this work. We have some earlier work that does show that floral sonication behavior is heavily stereotyped. It's pretty much expressed by naive bees on their very first floral visit, even within their first 
few seconds uh, on a flower. So we do have some indication that the base routines, scrabbling and sonication, are also innately um, uh, specified. But the switching is what we focused on in this study because that is the basis of the flexible behavior. Okay, so I'm wondering about now the broader significance of this if there is no learning involved at all, right? Right, exactly. And so this could be something that allows a bee to forage on any given number of species across the world. And you, you can imagine this might be especially important when we're in this anthropomorphic age where we're transporting plants from one continent to another or bees from one continent to another, which may have never, um, they, they never evolved with the, the, the flowers or the pollinators in that region. Yet, because the pollinators are able to use this this behavior, they're able to still effectively pollinate, probably. So that's our that's our grand uh, idea behind this. That is fascinating. And thank you very much for chatting with us and for sharing your research. Sure. And thank you for taking the time. All right. And next up, we've got Dr. Frank Smith from UNC Chapel Hill. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about tardigrades. Uh, so Frank, just to get us started, you know, I was hoping you could tell us, uh, what is a tardigrade? Tardigrades are very tiny animals. Uh, the largest tardigrades are about 500 microns in length. That's about half a millimeter. And they're kind of famous for their abilities to be able to su survive extreme habitats uh, or extreme environments. So tardigrades can become completely desiccated. And, uh, and upon rehydration, um, they can just, you know, uh, come right back to life or they're, they're alive through that period. But the metabolism starts right back up and they're able to continue on their way. Thanks for filling us in. And now, can you tell us a little bit about your presentation at SICBI? What were you discussing there? Uh, I was part of a symposium, a special symposium about um, the origin of arthropod body plans. And so um, if you think about an arthropod, uh, any given arthropod is composed of a series of segments. And I was excited to be part of this symposium because I don't actually study arthropods currently. I study tardigrades. But the interesting thing is that tardigrades are fairly closely related to arthropods they're also composed of segments. They're also com they also uh, uh, have appendages. Um, however, their their uh, segmental morphologies are much simpler. So, tardigrades only have um, five segments. They have four pairs of legs. And so, my presentation was about how that simple morphology of a tardigrade relates to the morphologies of arthropods. Um, and uh, uh, I, the way that I compare these two different lineages is by looking at the uh, expression patterns and functions of genes in tardigrades. So there's a very interesting suite of genes in arthropods called the Hox genes that demarcate specific regions of the body axis during development. I was able to look at those Hox genes and see which Hox genes are present in um, tardigrades and where they're uh, expressed during development in tardigrades to get an idea of how the body plan of tardigrades relates to arthropods. So it turns out that almost the whole body axis of a tardigrade uh, is related to just the head of arthropods based on the expression patterns of the, these genes and which genes are actually present in the genome. There's just uh, these like head uh, patterning genes in the genome. Okay, so out of curiosity then, do tardigrades and arthropods have a common ancestor? Yeah, so, so yeah, they do share a common ancestor, and the common ancestor probably looked a lot like a tardigrade in terms of uh, having simple segmental patterns. Probably each, uh, probably almost every segment had a pair of legs, but the ancestor would have been a lot longer than a tardigrade because there would have been this trunk region that looked very similar to uh, uh, the anterior region at that stage of evolution. 
but that large trunk region has actually been lost in leading to the uh, the extant tardigrades. So one so one one thing that we know now is that you know the common ancestor was longer than um, a tardigrade. Like tardigrades are only five segments. It probably had many more segments. Something uh, like an arthropod. So there's been a loss of many of those segments leading to the tardigrades. Okay, and so it's sort of the end game of your work, developing an understanding of how they evolved the body plane that they have. Yeah, the, the end game of my work is really to um, use a comparisons between tardigrades and arthropods to get a better idea of how like, diversity of body plans uh, evolves more generally. So we have this really nice system, uh, the tardigrade, which probably in many respects uh, is more similar to the ancestor of arthropods than extant arthropods are. And so by using this comparison, the hope is really to like get to the general principles of developmental evolution to understand how these, how diversity arises. And have any of those principles been revealed? Yeah, there, there are, have, I think there have been some very interesting principles that have been revealed. I think one of the interesting things that uh, my work has shown and has been um, also uh, seen in other lineages is that we see animals like arthropods that have very regionalized morphologies along the body axis. And we know that there's these genes that underlie this regionalization. And we look at animals like tardigrades, which don't show that extreme regionalization of morphology. But when we look at the actual genes, they already show these regionalized expression patterns. So it looks like these genes exhibited these regionalized expression patterns long before the actual regionalized morphologies evolved. And one interesting question is kind of understanding like why they show these regionalized expression patterns so early. What were they doing in these simpler animals? And we'll look forward to learning more. I was wondering if you could um, just talk to us a little bit about the SICME meeting itself. You know, how was your experience there? Yeah, I think the thing that I like the most about the SICME meeting is, is that there's people there that are doing such different things. Uh, there's, you know, almost any area of biology you're interested in, there's going to be a, um, you know, a symposium focused on that or a session. And so, you know, it's really fun for me because I get to go there and at the same meeting, I get to talk to paleontologists, phylogeneticists, um, developmental biologists, evolutionary de- uh, biologists, and there's very few meetings where I can go and talk to all these different, these people doing such different things. And for the questions that I'm interested in, it is integrative and I need to know like how animals are related um, and get and different ideas of how they evolved in order to like really, um, uh, you know, test hypotheses that I'm interested in. So for me, it's like that integrative uh, framework that the SICBE meeting is, is based on is really exciting to me and basically why it's the meeting that I try to attend every year. And we'll look forward to hearing more about your work next year. Frank, thank you very much for joining me. Very, very happy, James, that you contacted me and um, have a nice day. All right. And last but not least, we have Yan Wong, who is a PhD student at the University of Chicago. And she's going to be talking to us about maternal behavior in octopus. Yan, thank you very much for joining me today. Yep. Thank you. All right. uh, With no further ado, then, why don't you tell us a little bit about your talk? Yeah, sure. Um, So I think the title of my talk was something like Maternal Behaviors and Death in the Octopus. Um, And this is, it was my dissertation project. It is my dissertation project. Um, And what I'm doing is I'm using um, next generation RNA sequencing to understand some of the molecular uh, mechanisms behind the optic gland of the octopus, um, which is an important organ during the maternal brooding period that eventually leads to death. 
So my presentation was sort of just a, a presentation of the preliminary data that has come out of this. So. Okay, so how do those factors interact, uh, the maternal brooding and death? What's the, what's the mechanism there? Yeah, so um, I think a lot of people don't know this, but most octopuses are really short-lived. Um, <clears throat> so I think a lot of people know that octopuses are super smart, you know, they have huge brains, um, and it's kind of a mystery as to why our species, for example, would only live for a year. Um, and what happens is that after they reproduce, um, they die. So octopuses are what are called um, semiparous, which means that they only reproduce once in their lifetimes, unlike you know, humans, which are iteroparous um, or other animals that we're familiar with. Um, <clears throat> so uh, after the female octopus reproduces and lays her eggs, um, she starts on this sort of death cycle. So she'll, as she's tending to her eggs, she'll stop eating. Um, and then she goes through this, this spiraling period of really destructive behaviors, um, and then eventually she dies. What are the destructive behaviors? Yeah, so what we've noticed is that um, they will uh, rip the skin off of their body. They will eat their arms. Um, and, uh, you know, just sort of generally cause damage to the soft tissue of their body. Okay, and I'm wondering, have you gained any insight into why they do this shortly after breeding and why, you know, they've evolved this mechanism? Yeah, that's a question that I get a lot, and um, I don't quite know. So um, other animals also die after reproducing, right? So I think salmon are a pretty um, famous example or a well-known example. Um, after they mate, they die. And uh, for other semiparous animal species, it seems that the energetics and the, um, the metabolics behind reproducing, either producing um, the gametes or the act of reproduction itself, is so uh, energetically expensive that they die. Um, in the octopus, it's been proposed that it's... Um, a population control mechanism. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, octopuses are uh, cannibalistic, so they eat each other. Um, and if the older generation doesn't die by the time the newer generation um, arises, you know, the bigger one will eat all the littler ones, and then eventually we would just have one gigantic octopus um, in the ocean. Um, but it, it isn't really known, and it is still quite a mystery, and I suspect it has a lot of, um, a lot of different factors contribute to That's interesting. And so you, you mentioned earlier uh, your work was specifically on, was it a single nerve? Oh, it's on a, um, a neuroendocrine gland. So it's um, this gland called the optic gland, which is an analog to the vertebrate pituitary gland. And it sort of is an intermediary between the central nervous system and the rest of the body. Um, it secretes hormones. And the reason why I'm interested in this gland is because the hormones um, themselves have been shown to uh, 
be responsible for uh, the fasting that happens during the brood period that eventually leads to death. Okay, and so could you tell us a little bit about the research that you presented at the meeting that was related to the gland? Yeah, so the gland, um, well, I think in general, octopus research um, has been hindered by a lack of um, available molecular techniques. And in 2015, um, our lab, along with Dan Roxar's lab at the University of Berkeley, sequenced the octopus genome. And that really allows us to take, you know, um, a cutting edge 21st century approach to studying a lot of these long-standing questions in octopus biology. And so using, <coughs> excuse me, using the genome, um, uh, and the transcriptomes that were published with that with that paper, um, I'm sort of jumping off of that. And so we did um, optic land sequencing for moms at specific uh, stages in their life history. And the idea is that I'm going to compare uh, the transcripts that are expressed in those uh, from, as a result of that sequencing to get at what... Um, what genes, what transcripts are important for all of these behaviors. That's fascinating. And we'll certainly look forward to more. Thank you very much for joining me. Yep. Thank you. All right. And now I'm back with Rick. And Rick, we've just heard some really great presentations. And we've heard a lot about what happened at the last SIGBE meeting. And now I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what's coming up on the horizon for those who may be interested in learning more or maybe even participating in the conversation themselves. Right. So... Every year we have an annual meeting and you know, we were speaking about the one that we just had. So the next one that we're having is in San Francisco. So in the planning for the San Francisco meeting, we're going to have um, the proposals for symposia coming in for memberships. So again, recognition of, of topics that are particularly current and interesting where you know, work is moving fast and we wanna make sure that the broader membership um, and people interested in, in these areas in general, will have a chance to get a focused attention on that. Um, so we'll be planning the review of what topics we'll be highlighting at the next meeting. Um, and then our next meeting will be held uh, in January in uh, San Francisco. Another good location. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice. We do actually try to make sure that we you know, go to different locations in the country to make sure that it's, it's easy for you know, lots of different people to attend. Okay. And if uh, listeners are interested in learning more, uh, where should they go to find out about SICBI? Uh, the first place would be our website, um, like many places. So it's www.sicb.org. And um, that's a good introduction to the types of work that's being done and the different divisions within the society that focus on different particular areas and um, also a good place to figure out how you can join and become involved. Great. And I'm sure our listeners will head on over and do just that. Thank you very much for joining me, Rick. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that concludes this special episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. It is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.